How, how important do you think, well, hello, Tim. How are you? Hi, Zach. Um, how, how are you? <laughs> great. How important do you think like consistency in a brand is? We were just talking about how we always kind of wear like very similar clothes. Usually you're wearing like a Tesla or the, um, uh, uh, I go SpaceX, man. I feel, yeah, I feel like that's my part that I have to support them. A lot of, a lot of launches happen, seem to happen on Thursdays. So I support them as much as I can. I feel like, you, uh, from do a, you think people associate you for the clothes that you wear? I don't know. I've never thought about it. So I actually branded myself to like the jeans and t-shirt type of thing way back when. So I feel like people actually, did. I mean, I would vocally say that type of thing. I think that's, yeah an important aspect of it. And I, I don't know. I feel like people have to be very cognizant of, of what they want people to think about. And a lot of times because of looks, I guess they, for whatever reason, I, I don't know the reason, but they start to associate things like that. You know, bankers wear suits, you know, your financial people wear, wear suits, whatever. Um, it's very, I don't know, but people definitely associate me. They're like, oh, are you wearing jeans and a t-shirt? And then obviously when I became the, the president of the jean jacket movement, that um, that started it too. But is that is that ridiculous to think? No. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I just I just never really stopped to pay attention or to even think about what someone may think about me. I guess uh, I'm just always going forward. And I don't know. I, I suppose some people have thought that I've worked for Tesla just uh, in the sense that I've wear so much of their apparel but hmm. but uh to transition to this crazy conversation to a very important one i think it's you know the the brands that we associate ourselves with are incredibly important um and like you said tim maybe a lot of people don't think of it that kind of way so we are delighted to not have to spell out today's guest company name because well, that would be like Mississippi. It would just be way too hard. Allison, how are you? <laughs> hey, guys, I'm good. I I know I picked a difficult name, but there's no scroobiest. meaning behind it. It's scroobiest. Did I get it right? Scroobiest. You got it. <laughs> We're, I'm done. I'm leaving. You guys have a wonderful day. <laughs> I, have, I have nothing else to achieve today. How, See, the cool thing, a, though, you'll remember it. <laughs> I will. But... From a branding perspective, from a, 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 a business perspective, from a wording perspective, how challenging is it that you have a name that a lot of people probably cannot pronounce, write out, et cetera, things on that? Is that, <laughs> is, is that something you've seen as a diff difficult thing? Uh, you know, it, it uh, can be challenging, and I know it can make people feel a little uneasy when they don't know how to pronounce it, but it ends up being a pretty net positive uh, because I get asked where does the name come from? And mm -hmm. as a mission-driven founder, there is meaning behind the name and I get to tell that story and then people remember it uh, because it is it is so different and it makes you smile. And that's a lot of our brand is making people feel good and, and infusing humor. So it works for our brand. A good icebreaker. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, with, with that, do you, buy, do you have, uh, did you buy any, uh, any various spellings for your uh for the urls or are you just banking on the fact everyone's going to get it right the first time no oh my gosh i mean are you really an entrepreneur if you don't own like 10 different domains <laughs> 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 that's probably on the i'm probably on the low side of domain uh no i've got a bunch of them because it is misspelled it actually comes from a poem it's there's a published poem called the scroobiest tip uh, but there is also funnily enough a rapper named the scroobiest tip who spells it incorrectly but spells it the way that most people would think to spell it so he has that domain um but the other cool thing is a lot of people think it stands for screw bias scroobius screw bias ah, and yes. we're all about promoting diversity so uh it works in that way too do you like the rapper's um music i mean could, could he you know create the jingle for you or she like is there <laughs> is there an opportunity there for for you know dj scroobius to come on out to to team scroobius like is, is that what we're about to see you know, I, I never thought about reaching out to him, but uh, maybe maybe I'll I'll give his music a listen and see. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Sounds like a solid plan for an offsite. There you go. So one thing that's interesting about the world that that you live in and, and create a business about is I think 
most people maybe just generally think that this is a thing that happens, but then when you actually read the number of 2% of um, two percent of VC-backed companies, only 2% of, I'm going to screw up the stat, but only 2% of VC-backed businesses are females and minorities. It's something like that. And then when you hear that, you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty insane. Like, where does that data come from? Uh, like it, it, it just, it almost seems like it's not believable. It's so low. Um, but it is, it's, I mean, that's, that's the yeah, truth. It's devastatingly low. Uh, so it's 2% of VC dollars go to women founders. Uh, and it. it's only talk about low it's 0.67% of VC dollars go to black women. So if you're a woman of color, it is almost statistically impossible for you to get VC funding. Uh, and when you have that kind of data, which is well established and many times published, you can Google it and find lots of sources for this. Uh, it is, um, you know, a systemic issue. It is not at all the case. And it would be, you know, not even mathematically sound to think that only 2% of women are investable or creating investable companies. So it's an indication that there is a system problem. Uh, and that's, you know, where there's a big opportunity to change or come up with innovations that direct capital from different sources and in different ways to address that issue, which indicates an enormous opportunity, right? That's the other way to look at it is all of those people who are not getting VC funding have unbelievably strong ideas and execution leadership to create wealth for those who will put capital toward them. What, what do you think the reason is behind that lopsided number? Is it just uh, people fund or people run in the same circles and they fund people that look like them, that they don't, that they're not, they, they don't do it with purpose in terms of, uh, you know, highlighting diversity. Uh, you know, what, I'm just curious what your take is. So it's a multifaceted question, right? There is a lot that goes into that <laughs> number. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, systemic bias issues that lead to who ends up in positions of power. So, you know, you can look at almost any uh, business or technology aspect and women are not represented and people of color are not represented in equal distribution to those who would be traditionally in those roles, which is due to, you know, generations of systemic bias. But in terms of venture uh, funding, you know, I think, I think it's still 98%. I could be wrong on that statistic, but it's in the 90s percent of Czech writers and partners at venture funds are white men. Uh, and there is a very strong psychological principle called in-group bias, where you tend to see people who are more like you as more competent, uh, and therefore you direct your resources toward those people that you view as competent at what they are doing. Uh, and it also has to do with your networks. We also tend to know people who are like us. Those are our circles. Uh, and for an industry like venture, which relies extremely heavily on networks and referrals and warm introductions, overwhelmingly, those are going to also be white men because those that's who the check writers are. I know growing up, it seems that, and this may, maybe this is a crazy parallel, but uh, growing up, it seemed like, you know, Guys did guys things, girls did girls things, right? And so women in tech was something that wasn't really pushed the way that I think that it is now. It are, does that have a big play into it as to, to maybe why some of that stuff's there? And because now women in tech is something that's being pushed so much um, or or encouraged that that we're, we're going to see that sway? Or, I mean, do you think because there was so gender um, pushed things, you know, guys drive cars, girls do home act type of thing, you know, as ridiculous as a, as a statement that is, I mean, I feel like that's, that's kind of the things that were pushed way back when, you know, guys go to shop class, girls, girls, you know, play with Barbies. I mean, is, is, are we seeing the full swing of that? Like is, I don't know. Is yeah, that, I is mean, that a crazy all... parallel? I mean, is that yeah. a crazy parallel? I mean, I, I that's just, 
No, it all feeds into it. It's why it's such a sticky question, right? So for sure, what you experience when you're younger influences how you perceive yourself and what you're capable of and what you should be doing, right? So I remember in the days of gym class where the boys were playing hockey and the girls had, uh, you know, like uh, step aerobics or, you know, something ridiculous. Uh, totally remember that, right? But but there's other, there's so many other elements at play. And if we're just kind of focusing on the women in tech aspect, uh, it is a strong hiring bias. So just like a funding bias, there's a hiring bias because management and senior leadership is still overwhelmingly white men in tech companies. Uh, and I can share, you know, with you, I've been, I didn't talk about this until basically last year and I've been more vocal and I've heard so many stories uh, relating to it. Uh, I was forced out of my job when I returned from maternity leave with my first child. And uh, there are still, that was a long time ago now, but there are still those types of practices in tech companies where they're able to make it impossible for a new mother or you know someone returning from leave to stay in that senior tech role. Uh, and that impacts the whole rest of that person's career. And I, I call it the mom tax. Uh, it impacted my career when I had a period where I was at home with children and I missed out on some critical network and relationship building parts of my journey, uh, you know, that didn't impact the other men who got to go back to, you know, never had to take a leave and go back. And they just, you know, so that's just one element of it. There's so, so many other factors at play that lead to these inequities and discrepancies. Um, but, you know, the good news today is people are being more vocal about it. There are easier ways to uh, create impactful technology platforms to address some of these inequities. Uh, and in terms of, you know, just getting back to kind of startups and entrepreneurship, uh, a lot of women and moms in particular are turning to entrepreneurship and they're able to capitalize their companies from sources other than venture. So we are, we're seeing a big push for capital coming from different places, which is very, you know, encouraging. What, what do you mean capital from different places? Uh, so angel investors are very quickly growing. That's just individuals who are funding companies, right? I became an angel investor this year, uh, and that's not venture. It's very different from a fund that has got, got uh, limited partners behind it and, you know, bureaucracy and all, all those things. Uh, so angel investors are becoming a much bigger uh, open source of capital. And then uh, crowdfunding has also exploded just in the past few years, really. Um, we've seen increased um, or easier regulations for people to be able to uh, fund through a crowdfunding portal. And that's also been providing capital to startups that would otherwise struggle to raise from venture. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Just in the sense of if you look at the traditional VC uh, vehicles that are out there, organizations, it, it just seems like so many of these, uh, quote unquote, older white guys, I mean, they're just up in their office, uh, you know, and they it takes several meetings to even meet with any of these decision makers. Um, yeah, so like the, the, the researchers or uh, the associates that are fielding these companies and sourcing these companies. I mean, it just the time that it takes to, to reach to a decision maker, they're just so out of touch with everything that happens that it's really, really difficult to, for anyone to surface through, let alone if you are female or of color. Um, so these individual investors and angels, uh, I mean, I learned real, real early not to discount anybody or their ability to execute on an idea, let alone one that they're very passionate about, sol uh, pro a passionate problem that they're solving. Um, so I, I, yeah, I certainly agree that the individual angel aspect is gonna is something that's gonna move the move the playing field forward. Yeah, no, it's a, it's enormous. I mean, people don't realize there are more than four million actively investing angels just in the U.S., and that's an undercount because many angels, you, you don't know that they're angel investing. It's not public information. Uh, and people don't really like, it could be your doctor. It could be your coworker. You don't know who's angel investing. Uh, and they're able to see opportunities that VCs don't see 
for, you know, whatever reason, whether it's bias or whether it's the way their fund is structured and, you know, how they're building a portfolio. Uh, and they are a much more approachable source of capital. The issue now, and this is part of what we're doing at Scroobius, is how do you try to um, condense this fragmented market? Because, right, it's millions of just people, <laughs> of individuals. So how can we leverage data and a platform that scales to help angels find uh, these opportunities that they want to put their money behind? And how do we help them find other angels that they may not know that are not in their region or not in their social group who are very aligned with them so they can pool their money, their capital to get more into the hands of these startups? I'm curious. So we've, we've set the stage. I'm curious, what, what happened or how did you come up with wanting to start Scroobius? Uh, you know, what, what's some of the background? I get, let's just start with the background and then we can jump forward in terms of what the response was once you started. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you the, the origin story for the company. Uh, so I founded Scroobius two years ago, uh, literally right before COVID showed up, like the worst time to incorporate a company. <laughs> but um, before Scroobius, uh, I had launched and co-run a medical device startup that was spun out of MIT here. I'm in Boston, uh, where I did our fundraising. So we raised almost $10 million over the course of five years, uh, and then that company was acquired. But for me, what was very defining about the experience was the gender bias that I went through in the fundraising process. Uh, and I'm quite used to gender bias. We already talked about how I you know, was even forced out of a tech operator role, uh, and that I'm used to that. Um, but in the fundraising process, it was so much more overt. It really, I was not prepared for it. Uh, and I spent a long time uh, researching the space of fundraising and pitching itself to understand if my experience was typical or not. And that's when you very quickly find those devastating numbers about who gets funding. Uh, so for me, Coming from tech uh, as my background in uh, market research and consumer behavior and having gone through firsthand being a female founder fundraising, uh, I, I knew that there was this great need and opportunity to create uh, a, a tech innovation, a data-driven innovation to address this issue. And then what, so then you, uh, you incorporate, uh, and, and then what's, what's your response when you start talking to the public saying, this is what we're doing. This is what our mission is. Did people embrace that? Did you, did some people uh, roll their eyes? I, I, what was the response? Uh, so there's different responses from different people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, overall, it has been an incredibly welcoming environment, uh, but I'm also, you know, purposely aligning the company with organizations that do care about diversity in the startup ecosystem and do see uh, the undervalued asset class that uh, overlooked founders represent. This is where there is room to earn substantial returns and generate alpha when you have an undervalued asset class. Uh, so we work, I, I mean, we launched our own MVP, our minimal viable product a year ago, and we've worked with over 300 founders. Uh, I've not spent a dollar on sales or marketing. So the demand alone indicates just the intense need and interest and support of what we're doing. And our community has been fantastic. Uh, but there's plenty of VCs that I pitched myself in this you know, company. I've raised an angel round uh, that don't believe the numbers or don't believe that it's as big a problem as it is. Uh, and I've had some, some pretty uncomfortable and upsetting conversations. Uh, I'm just at a point in my own trajectory where I say, okay, we're not a good match for each other. Let's move on. Um, but that, that's really difficult for most people to not let it sink deeper. So we've had several guests on the show that say that they, they agree with everything that you're saying, that, that there's absolutely a problem, that they are trying to fix it, and then that they'll associate themselves with these groups who say that they want to fix it, and then they're just jibber-jabber. They just they just mm -hmm. talk. Um, and, and it's interesting to, to hear that because – you know, they then associate themselves to try to fix this thing with these people who say that they are trying to fix it. 
and there's there, there's no needle moving, if you will. Like, how how does one vet a group or an individual that they are actually walking their talk and not just saying that they think it's a problem and doing nothing about it? Yeah, it's it's a huge problem, uh, and one of the again more um, difficult pieces of data that's come out over the past couple of years is that there's been a large increase in the meetings that women and minority founders have been getting with uh, influential people and with check writers, but actually a decrease in the checks being written. So people are doing what you just said. They're taking meetings and feeling like they are doing something, but that's not doing anything but wasting somebody's time who doesn't have it to waste. Uh, so that, that is a big deal. And then we've also seen a number of accelerator programs for founders. It's exploded. Uh, and a lot of them are predatory. Uh, and, and they're not, you know, it, it's in that same vein of espousing, supporting these principles of these founders, but not actually doing it. Uh, so, you know, my guidance oh, so for basically how do just you know. Check, so just checking off a box, basically saying, hey, we, we are diverse, but just to be diverse and not doing anything from it. Right, and not putting real dollars or real time or real effort behind it. It's, you know, it's not, that's not helpful. That's not what people need. Uh, and these other folks, you know, then feel good, feel good about themselves. They're like, oh, well, I took a meeting with, you know, four black founders today. It's great, did you invest in any of them? No, but I've been filling my calendar. You know, that's, that's meaningless. Is there a rebuttal founders? that they're not investable? Is there a rebuttal that they're not investable in that case? Like, what, what's, what, what would they say is is the reason why they're not then funding them in that case, or in any uh, of these I mean, individuals? There's any in number that case? of reasons. Uh, you know, for investors, uh, particularly fund managers, so people that work at a, an institutional fund, uh, they are not incentivized to share the true reason for passing on a deal. Uh, and, you know, some of it, not all of it is bad natured. Some of it is that investors may want to engage when the uh, startup is at a later stage and they don't want to burn any bridges. They want to be able to stay in the game. So they'll usually say, oh, it's just too early or some other kind of very vague reason. You, you don't often get the real reason why somebody passed. Um, and a lot of the time it is team or team experience where they'll say, oh, well, this, um, you know, these team members haven't worked together in the past before and it's too risky or this team member doesn't have enough management experience and it's too risky. Uh, but the issue with that is it's not actually seeing the potential of execution of the company and it's perpetuating this cycle of bias because women and minorities are less likely to have been given those experiences to begin with. So the pool of people who meet this, you know, narrower and narrower criteria, it just shrinks along with it. And you end up with this more homogenous group that you deem as more investable based on that criteria. I would love to know uh, on your end, do you track this data in terms of with all that you're working with, you said 300 founders already. I would, it would be awesome if you track the data in terms of we've pitched this, these are the companies that we've pitched to, these are the excuses, these are the ones that actually funded, and then have your own list of these are the, these companies or these individuals have been the most diverse in terms of funding the com uh, companies that we work with. Do, do you do that at all? Uh, so I plan to, <laughs> you know, we're, uh, my job is very meta because I work with startups all day long, but also I am a startup and, right. you know, we're, we just released our own uh, V1, our first custom platform, like a couple months ago. Uh, so working toward that, but yeah, a lot of what we are going to do, what the data that's going into this is to lend transparency. Uh, so I'm particularly focused on angel investors. I, I don't think that, you know, kind of fixing VC is, going to get more checks to the founders that we work with. I think that angel investors is a better source of capital for it or crowdfunding portals as well. Uh, and we're building in data that will show both the founder and the investor for themselves, 
what type of material they're engaging with so that they can get a sense and see with more clarity if they are biased towards certain demographics or segments um, versus the average user on the platform. What have you found uh, in terms of the, 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 with the people that you've worked with, is there, have you identified anything that as a strength or an opportunity to strengthen founders that they've been missing? Um, I mean, terribly worded question, but I'm just curious, like <laughs> what, what you have found. I mean, because like, does well, that let me, make let, me, let me let me ask yeah. the question differently. Yeah. So Tim and I have worked with probably 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, no joke companies over the last decade, right? A lot of times you can tell when one is going to be successful or not just by having a conversation with them, right? My guess is you you potentially have 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 seen this as well in many of the companies. Like, is there a trend from a positive standpoint that these that these companies are that you're seeing with that? Maybe a negative side of it that they tend to have that they can uh, that there's an opportunity from. Like, uh, where what are some of the strengths and weaknesses that you're seeing in this this kind of world? Because Sometimes you can just tell that a company maybe isn't going to be successful, and I don't. I, I don't think that that has anything to do with diversity. I think that has to do with maybe they just aren't ready yet to 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 see that, and then there's an opportunity there as well. I don't know if I fit, fit helped your question, Tim, but um, uh, so, try. Yeah, I mean, it's. I understand your point and, and, you know, there is some intuition there or some benefits of having worked with a large set so that you can see patterns and signals, you know, that others might not see without the benefit of working with that large set. Uh, it is difficult to parse out though, saying it doesn't have to do with diversity. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of the times this isn't ill or bad will, it's just, uh, a lack of transparency into your own systems or ways that the signals that you're pulling out to make these evaluations. Um, so, you know, a prime example in fundraising, because that, that's the world that I play in, is for groups who have been traditionally blocked from entering investor networks, they don't know how to understand what investors are thinking. And they don't get the benefit of seeing other founders interact with them to pick up on the signals that the investors are responding to because they're not, they're blocked. They can't get in. So to then judge that group in the same way you would judge founders who have had access to those networks, it's not a level playing field, right? You can't, you can't, look at the same signals, it's not the right measure of potential or of capability of execution. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I had two founders come in and they both were super strong, you know, like I wouldn't even care what their gender was, fine, but it's ignoring the experience that one has had in understanding how you think and the, and the lack of experience from the other in understanding how you think. So our, you know, platform, the content that we provide for how you pitch, a lot of it <clears throat> is focused on helping founders understand how investors think, because you can't present compelling material if you if you don't understand what their mindset is. Yeah, and and I guess I was I knew the answer that I wanted to hear, which was that that was what I was hoping to hear is just that people just haven't been exposed to the opportunity. You know, that, that it's not a matter of if they're qualified or not qualified. It's just, they either just don't know how, or they've not been shown the way to get the exposure that they need. Um, yeah. That's, it's just, I don't, what, what, what advice do you give the, the founders that you're working with and, and, and what advice would you give to the people that are listening to this show in terms of what's the best way to, to start capturing the attention of those funding sources? Uh, <laughs> there's lots of advice. Uh, sure. um, uh, you know, I'll start with 
a couple. And, you know, one, I'm just going to reiterate the importance of understanding the other person's mindset and what they're looking for. Uh, so, you know, for investors, whether it's a VC or whether it's an angel, the lens that investors look at pitches through is one of de-risking. And this is not intuitive to founders. They're, they're starting with a negative view, really, where they're trying to take risk away that what you're doing is going to work. So everything you're pitching should be meant to take away risk for the investor versus these big, you know, sometimes you'll see these big grandiose, like we're the best, we're gonna change the world, you know, these huge statements, but that's not taking risk away that the thing you're gonna do is gonna work because the investors like you both, right? You've seen thousands, you've worked with thousands of uh, entrepreneurs and companies. Well, investors have seen thousands of pitches, right? They get in info all the time. They see hundreds a week. So they, do have that other view and, and you're in that context and they're constantly trying to say, what's the least risky that I'll make a return on my money? Uh, and so that's just a really important thing for founders to understand when they're talking to investors. They don't wanna hear your big, I'm gonna change the world. They wanna hear that you have a real viable company. Yeah, and I think that the other thing that that that's not taking place is that there's nobody that educates the angel investors uh, in terms of how to be one. So it's like they're naturally wired to only th like, all right, they, does, does it meet this criteria? Check, 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 check. Okay, they're to me, they're investable. Whereas, you know, they're there should be some sort of education process in terms of this is where you know, this is the way that you need to think. Like to be an angel investor, you're, you, you have to have the mindset of, what if this does work? What if this does change the world? What if, you know, and then, you know, that's what you're betting on. Uh, you know, is, is there any educational components out there to help educate angel investors? Yeah, that's a huge, that's the huge other side, right? It's, it's really a marketplace. You've got the founders who need capital to create these opportunities that will better the world. Uh, and then you have the investors who are the check writers and they can't <clears throat> exist without the other. And there is a real education gap on the angel side as well about how you even get started. Uh, there are organizations that do, they're starting to put out more material. Uh, there's an, the Angel Capital Association has Angel University and I, I'm on the DEI uh, committee there and they're working hard to figure out how to bring education to a broader group of emerging angels to increase the diversity of who's getting into it. Um, and there's some other programs coming out. Some venture funds actually have started their own angel groups that go with the education there. I'm part of one. Um, so Vitalized VC has an angel group, Hustle Fund has an angel group, and it's starting to get out there more. But just because of the scale, the number of angels out there or potential angels, that's a big thing to tackle. Have, have you... Now that the markets are kind of resetting uh, and there's not as much capital out there, have you experienced anything on your side in terms of now it's even more difficult to raise capital or if you've not seen that yet? So it's an interesting question, uh, you know, because I really focus on founders who traditionally have not been, have had a very challenging time raising capital always, uh, you know, this whole like, oh, it's downturning and, you know, it's going to be such a difficult raise environment. Well, for us, it's always been a difficult raise environment. We're always being very capital efficient. We're, you know, this is kind of like normal operations for women and minority founders. Um, so in that sense, you know, yes, there are, there's less dollars being put out into the market right now than there have been in a while, you know, in a wild, a more conservative investing environment. Um, but primarily for funds, for VCs, angel activity is still very strong. Uh, and I have not seen a decrease in the angel activity, but it's also one that's very hard to measure uh, because so much of it is not public data. So 
so my view is a little biased in, in the angels that I know and, you know, in the world that I'm in, um, you know, and the, just the last point on EC, we are seeing, again, an, as if it could get any lower, a, another decrease in dollars going to underrepresented founders, because whenever there's a downturn, VCs will revert back to more warm introductions in network doubling down in their portfolio companies rather than investing in new companies. Uh, so we are seeing that, but at the early stage, I'm still as optimistic about opening up this, you know, the sources of capital from outside of DC. Have you always been a go-getter? Have I always been a go-getter? Is that what you just asked? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you want to go get what you want? I think there's plenty of people who don't. Um, so were you like class president or something in high school growing up? Like, did you, were you like the treasurer in, uh, in middle school? Like, like, so let me, let me get to my deep question of this. Like you, you started a medical tech company way back yonder that obviously you had to be a go-getter for, then you see this huge problem, uh, which you started Scrubius for, you have to be a go-getter for that. Like, how did you, like, is it an on off switch? Like, like what, what makes you want to jump in? And, and, and go after stuff like this because I, I what it, not a lot of people start a business, right? I mean, the entire country is based off of the employee mindset. So I, I don't think there are, I, I think, I, I don't think there's a ton of go-getters. And I think the people that really are the ones that see success. So, uh, but like what made you, what makes you want to, to jump off the deep end and, and go after something? Cause I, I, I think it's admirable and most people don't want to do something that's difficult. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, yeah, you know, when I, so I think if you are a founder or a person who can see room to do something that will help others. So if you, if you really care about impact and mission and wanting to make the world a little bit of a better place in whatever way that you can, you you have a more natural inclination to do more entrepreneurial things uh, and to put yourself out there more. Uh, and particularly uh, if you are a person who has experienced a type of inequity, you're even more so wanting to do something to make that a more equitable and enjoyable experience. Um, so, you know, my entry into entrepreneurship did come after that period of time where I was uh, driven out of the workforce when I had a child. Uh, and so, you know, I am now immediately passionate about how it allowed me to re-enter the workforce in a sustainable way that then became very powerful and impacted the rest of my career trajectory. Uh, so, you know, I, I think my answer to that is, is just that is some people have a, uh, feel more fulfilled than others in seeing a type of injustice or a type of opportunity where they can actually do something about it uh, and, and needing to do it. I can't see that and not try to do something. How do you teach that understanding? How do you educate? How do you, uh, you have one child now? I have, I have two children. Two. So how do you teach that mindset? How do you teach that lifestyle? How do you teach that grind to go after something like that to your kids without necessarily teaching them, you know, start a business right now? Like are, are there things that you can do to encourage them to, to, to see, to get through kind of the gritty times and to go after something that you want? I mean, part of it is just continuing to work, right? Is seeing nothing teaches someone better than learning by example or seeing people in your life who are doing those things. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard as a child, like your, your brain doesn't fully develop till you're 25, right? So like you're constantly learning. I'm 38, and... I don't think it has yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know you that well, but, <laughs> um, but it, just biologically, right? You're, you're constantly coming into yourself until you're 25 years old. Uh, and then obviously you keep learning after, but, uh, it was very important for me having gone through that, you know, truly identity crisis where I was home with babies and I had already had an educational and professional career. I'd already gotten my MBA to sit there and say, 
what am I going to do? Because I don't know that I, I can just be an employee somewhere after this, what I just went through. I was very successful in that role and, you know, wasn't allowed to stay in it. Uh, what happened? So, you know, for me, for my children, I want them to see that their mother is following what she wants to do and what she is passionate about. And then she is helping other people in the way, right? Like I'm living it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the things that I'm talking about. That is the strongest way to teach that. And I do a lot of speaking at universities and organizations where I can be that female and in particular mother voice of someone in a position of leadership for younger people to see. It's really important. You know, there's another psychological principle of, that's called mere exposure, where just the number of times you see something impacts how normal you view it. So, right, like you're, you know, it's great that you intentionally did invite me on the show and that you do have an eye toward making sure you invite guests who represent dem different demographics because others need to see it. They need to see people being brought on as guests who are different than them so that that becomes more normalized. Okay, so uh, quick, quick little thing of that. Uh, so I learned my uh, work ethic from my mom when uh, my mom and dad split up. She and I didn't realize this until later in life, kind of like what you're saying. Um, but she would work her normal job and she had like two part time jobs to keep her other two kids. Uh, so there's three of us to keep us afloat. And I mean, she was working basically 18, 19 hours a day to make it so that we would still be able to have, you know, somewhat of a normal life, if you will. And so, like, I look at that, and I'm like, damn, like, that's that's crazy that this lady did this for me. Like, I, I, I need, like, that's like true love, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a nice thing. And, you know, obviously I've, I've thanked her about that since. And it's just like, it's crazy to think that that, um, but you do kind of learn that work ethic from something like that. Another yep. thing that's crazy just from the guy to either the left or right of me and Tim is that he's run every single day for like seven, eight years, at least two miles, every single day, two miles. He started this streak and about four and a half years ago, I decided that I was going to do something very similar. And I use that in quotation marks because I have not run every single day from there, but I was going to work out or do something physical every single day. And I have for four and a half straight years. And that's because I had seen him do it for four or five years before that. Yeah it started that mirroring effect uh, or, or you, you, you see that enough and you're like, Oh, maybe I can do that type of thing. And, and I, and I do think that that probably has something to do with the thing where they say, you know, surround yourself by the, you know, uh, the, the five people in your life is how, how well your life will be or whatever that saying is like the, uh, yeah. you are, you the are the of, average. Yeah. The average of the five people around your life. Like, so if yeah. you surround yourself with, with a bunch of donkeys, your life is probably going to be, you know, a, a donkey life. But if you, if, if you, <laughs> you might be with a bunch of people, <laughs> <laughs> might be an ass. I didn't want to say it, but yeah. uh, you know, fill yourself with donkeys. You're going to be an ass. If you uh, fill yourself, surround yourself with a bunch of people who are, who are, who are go-getters and, and are doing things that seem uh, unbelievable. You might start to be doing some unbelievable things yourself. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and you have to see people that look like you doing those things to, to feel that. Right. The, the other side of it is if you only see people who don't look like you doing those things or around you, you think you can't. Um, so it, it, it's both surrounding yourself with that type of person, but also making sure that there's people in there who look, who look like you do. Um, you know, so and I'm referencing, obviously, people who tend to be in circles where there aren't others who, who are, you know, underrepresented. Um, but that's, that's why representation is so important because you don't get that mirroring effect if you don't think that you can also do that thing. Why do you think that people are not intentional uh, in terms of with this? I mean, is it, is it, do you think that they're afraid? Do you think they don't know, they don't know how? I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I, I, I've learned a lot during this episode just because I, in my head, I just feel like everybody should think the way that I think. And I'm just, I, I never discount anybody. I, I accept everyone for who they are. We're very intentional on this show to make sure that we have a very diverse uh, set of guests. Um, why do you think that people are not deliberate uh, you know, with, with the way they do things? 
I mean, isn't it like you're the king of like loaded questions? <laughs> <laughs> Give him a hat. Give this kid a crown. Come on. But no, um, I, mean, I, I just yeah. I, because I don't feel like I can answer that question because you know I, I just I, I would like to hear it from you so that we can you know help amplify your voice in the sense of hey, it's okay to be deliberate saying we we want to have a boot camp with all female founders. That that's you know that's totally cool. That's legit. I mean, so it's just like why aren't people doing that? I, it just I don't understand. I mean, again, it's not always ill will, right? It's not always purposeful that you're not including representation of others. Uh, you know, some of it is um, subconscious. Uh, so like there's some great research and work done by uh, someone named Dana Kahn's about promotion versus prevention questions. So she studied a ton of pitch meetings and evaluated the type of questions that investors would give to women versus the questions they would give to men and found that there was a significant difference statistically that men were asked uh, promotion questions like the upside, how, how big could this growth be? How strong could your sales be? And women were asked prevention questions, you know, like, well, how can you ensure that this won't happen? Or, you know, kind of the downside. The investors were not purposely doing that, right? It was, it was subconscious, but it happened and it influences how that founder is perceived and whether they are asked to continue on in the diligence process. So there are a lot of psychological factors at play in perpetuating uh, bias and not being intentional where it is not, uh, you know, again, purposeful that someone's doing that. And then there are people who default to easy, you know, like we were talking about before, if you tend to know people who are like you, you would have to go find other people who aren't. And that's harder to do than to just surround yourself with the people you already know. How yeah, does the internet... No, how does... The, just, how does sorry. Go ahead, sorry. Zach. I, I, <laughs> no, I was just interested, like, how does the internet... Sorry, jeez. All right. Well, you're still laughing. So I asked. So how does the internet play into that? Like, does that make it better or worse? Uh, in what way? Well, so <laughs> growing up, you didn't have access to all these things. So you couldn't see all these conversations uh, happening. Are we at, does, does social media, does the internet, does having access to all of this stuff um, make it better, make it worse? Is it just the same? Like where, where, where's the internet play in that role? I mean, it's some of both, right? It's some of A and some of B. I don't so, get to be the king of like loaded questions too. I mean, this, come on. I, 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 well, I mean, yeah, I already named a king, prince. Or... <laughs> I'll be your prince. Um, uh, so, you know, it is obviously way easier to find other people today than it was before because of the internet, right? You can expand your network in a way that would never have been possible, right? I managed to grow our company in a huge way entirely virtually. If the internet didn't exist, I don't think Scroobius would exist today when I started it right before COVID and quarantining. Uh, so in that sense, it allowed us and others to find our community. Uh, you know, in our community right now, uh, again, we've got over 300 founders and I think the latest statistics are that it's 60% women and 70% non-white individuals. So we, we've managed to find our tribe, right? Our crowd. Um, on the other hand, you know, people will still feel more comfort or familiarity around those who are like them. And you see that heavily in social networks. Uh, so you still have to be intentional just because it's easier to find someone on the internet, you know, where that wasn't an option uh, before, you still have to intentionally find those people. And, and not everyone has the proclivity to do that. Yeah, I, the the point that I was gonna that I was making was the fact that you know people 
they're called blind spots for a reason. And people have these blind spots just, and just as you said, yeah, people aren't necessarily purposefully acting the way that they're acting, but it's just, I want to help identify those blind spots that people may have so that they can self-reflect and say, Oh, wow. That that's, maybe that's totally me. So not trying to set you up with loaded questions, but just really trying to shake some of the blind spots out of people so they can self-identify so that they can take, make the change and take action for themselves yeah. because it has to be intentional. Yeah. Well, it's, it's data, right? This is where if you don't track something, if you can't see the numbers behind something, you won't understand whether it's real or not. Uh, so for investors, it's very easy to say, oh, I'm not biased. You know, I like, I just invested in a woman, right? I can't be biased, but what, what if it's the only one? And right. Who are you taking meetings with, right? So like I did one, I did a post a while back where I made just a simple spreadsheet to track that, right? Where you just put in, who did you meet with? Uh, what is their gender? What is their race? Did you take a second meeting? Did you take a third meeting? Did you invest? And just write them down so that you can evaluate your own behavior. Because if you don't track it, if you don't measure something, you won't change it. And, and you have to see it to believe it yourself, right? So again, I talked about, you know, on our own platform, we're building a dashboard for investors to say, hey, you engaged with pitches, you know, or 90% of your pitches you engaged with are men. You, then you take away the argument because it, it's true. It happened, right? But in, if you don't have the numbers, then you can easily say, oh, that's not true. Right. And again, not always ill will. You're not lying, but we're very good at justifying our own behavior so that we feel OK about ourselves. It's human nature. It's what we do. So you, you have to be confronted with data. That's true. Uh, what do you do for fun? <laughs> uh, I do like trick. to have fun. I know this is a serious conversation, but anyone who knows me knows I actually humor is a huge part. You have to enjoy what you're doing and you, and you have to laugh and, and have a good time um, or, or else why are you doing anything? Uh, so uh, for fun, well, I mentioned I have two kids and a husband and a dog. So most mostly family stuff, lots of kids sports and camps and all that, all that you know, good stuff that comes with elementary school. Um, gosh. I mean, between kids and family and a startup, these are the fun things. I right. Kind of I always hard. find that's that's probably the most difficult question that anybody asks me when they're, what, at, what do I do for fun? That's just like, I don't know. Life is pretty fun. I'm doing this. If I wasn't doing the stuff I'm doing, it wouldn't be, yeah, I wouldn't be doing it because then it's not fun. So yeah. you could say you drive your Tesla. Well, that's fun. Sure. But I mean, but like, I don't know what answer people are expecting me to say. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. But life is fun. You, you got to have yeah. fun in life. Are you born and raised from Boston? Yeah, mm. I, I, I am. I'm a, we're, we're a Boston group. What is it about Boston that like is just so magical? Because like that's a city that I will never move to, but I would always want to move to type of thing. Right. Like I don't want to be like. I don't mind the cold, but I don't want to be that cold type of thing. But like that city, like they seem to love their, I'm a big sports fan. They seem to love their sports. That's a big thing. Obviously the Celtics just lost, which, which sucks. Uh, Thanks for, for bringing that up. Thanks. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it just seems like a place where people love sports and it's so like, uh, it, like not every city is like that, right? right. Like people love the Boston area, the new England area for sports. And it's just, I don't know. There's something magical about that. Like, what is it about Boston? Like when you're talking to people that just makes you love it. So it's funny. Um, it is true. Boston is pretty unique and there, there are some very not good parts about Boston, especially as it relates to diversity. Uh, we do not have a proud history there uh, or, or present a lot of the time, but um, it's, it's interesting. I think that Boston itself has gone through so many challenges and overcome the people of Boston, so many obstacles dating back to the founding days of our country uh, that we don't, we feel a bigger sense of cohesion 
and we don't take good things for granted, right? So like even the weather, a be- it is a beautiful day here in Boston. It's 80 degrees, it's not humid. Everyone that lives here is outside and loving and then like the best mood ever, right? Like no one appreciates a good weather day like someone in Boston. Uh, and you can't, you don't get that if you always have good weather days, right? You have to go through the bad ones to really appreciate when there's a good one. And I think just as a community, we pride ourselves in overcoming tough things and really enjoying the good things. Yeah. But I mean, how many bad days do you have to have to have a good one? (laughs) How many bad days? I don't know the ratio. Uh, (laughs) I haven't haven't measured it. Maybe maybe that's its own research uh, experiment. But uh, no, I just think, you know, any like any really strong community or geography tends to have a shared negative aspect as well. So you have that cohesion of the positive and even right with sports, like we went through a pretty dark sport period and then it got awesome, right? And uh, we all stuck through it. And so, you know, it just creates a tighter group. Have you ever been to Six Flags New England? As a child, well, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite roller coasters in the. I know that's a ridiculous question. So, uh, growing <laughs> up, I used to uh, ride roller coasters. Like I would travel the country and go to like different amusement parks. And so, one of the ones was in Agawam, Massachusetts, which I think is what like thirty minutes outside of Boston, and uh, it's called Superman, or at least it used to be called Superman. And I rode that as a kid, and it was a really good one. Probably a top five roller coaster for me. There you go. Had to throw it out thank, there. Thank, thank you yeah. for sharing um, for all the roller coaster enthusiasts. <laughs> that no one's just trying to promote tourism to boston boston is a special place (laughs) yeah i mean it's also just there's so much history you know for anyone that like there's no deeper roots you know it's just such a special place in our country yeah and specifically and we talked a little bit before we went live telling zach after running boston the last two years i mean running the boston marathon is something that i wish that every person could experience because it is unlike any running event, probably unlike, any, it's unlike any event, period. I mean, it's just truly, truly special. Yeah, yeah, well, it's funny. I was, um, over the weekend, I was a, a judge for a final pitch competition for a Harvard program, for the Harvard Business Analytics program. Uh, and it, it's a certificate program that mainly happened during COVID. So people didn't get to go to campus like they you know, would have normally. And, like people came from, everywhere, Australia, Dubai, all over the country, different, like all over the place. And the feeling, it was palpable how special that was. And it just like the marathon, right? For those of us that are here, I'm like, oh, I have to go to Cambridge today, you know, but you you take for granted that people travel here from all over the world to visit these places and be in these historic spots. Uh, And it, it really is special. I dig that. Yeah, I, I and as a as a Yankee fan, as a Bills fan, as a I, I mean, I just as a as someone from Buffalo, I mean, we're still going. We sports is nothing and been nothing but a dark time for us. We're we're waiting for our time. <laughs> well, you'll 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 like uh, you'll appreciate. I went to college in Syracuse, New York, which is just about the. Only it's like the more colder, grayer uh, spot. Like if I could go somewhere that was heavier on winter and darkness, that's what I did. (laughs) Is there there anything we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know. I I think I just want to, you know, we, we got into a pretty heavy conversation, which, you know, is good. It was really important. Um, but I also want to leave people with, you know, being an entrepreneur, while it's incredibly hard, is really exciting. Like, there's no other thing. You, you create something in the world that didn't exist before. How cool is that, you know? And so, yes, like, funding is an enormous challenge, uh, especially for those who are underrepresented. It's challenging anyway, but especially for us. And you're going to go through so many ups and downs and every day you're going to be like oh should I just get a real job right should I be an employee and not do this more but um I don't want to discourage anyone from getting into it if you really have that passion um because it's it's unlike anything else and and it's it's just such 
an exciting thing to do and way to contribute to progress in our society in, in a path that you really can't do any other way. I just wanted yeah. to end it happy. Yeah, it was it was a great conversation, and it's one that needs to happen over and over and over and over again. I wish it wasn't such a a long turn to get to where we need to be, but the more conversations like this, the uh, the, the better it's going to be, and the happier we'll become. Yeah, keep keep doing it. Keep having lots of different people on. With that being said, uh, if you are listening to the show and you want to be on the guest on the show, reach out to uh, either Tim or myself or Allison, and she can bridge us hopefully together uh, and, and we'll make it happen. Thanks for listening. Download and subscribe. And Allison, thanks for your time. We will continue the conversation offline and maybe online again in the future. Thanks, Peace. Allison. Right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.